good to be with you all this morning, those of you here in this room, but also those of you who are live streaming. My name is Daniel Long. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I would really love that opportunity. But I hope that you've met a lot of wonderful people here because this place is full of them. This is a family. Grateful to be part of this family with all of you, uh, Grace. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into um, Acts this morning. So pray with me. God, you are, you are the God who, who moves toward us. You're the God who speaks to us. You are the God who, who wants to include us and involve us. I'm so grateful that that is true. God, I know that you have something to say to me, to all of us this morning, to those who need to hear your words of grace. God, I ask that they would hear it. For those of us who need to hear your words of invitation, God, help us to feel and experience being invited by you. For those of us who need to hear your word of challenge and conviction, Help us to not resist it, but to trust that that comes from love and is an opportunity to move toward you in greater faithfulness. God, for those of us who need to be reminded that you are present, that you are near, I ask for a small moment of an encounter with you. God, I ask that we would all in whatever way we need to be and you are calling us to be, that we would be transformed by life in your spirit because of what you've done through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with a story that I came across. I think Steve Porter may have sent this to me. It was, a, um, it was almost like a short essay, personal essay, like a memoir of an English writer named Paul Kingsnorth, who, an English writer who grew up um, in, I think, in Ireland, uh, and he came across this church at some point, I think it was 15, 16, and it was a church that was abandoned, the ruins of a church, it looked medieval, he says, uh, and came across something like a Bible in that church, and he reflects on that moment as almost like a metaphor of what the church was becoming at that time, almost like a relic, something in the past, something that didn't have much effect. And so he grows up, Paul grows up to become in some ways like an atheist and rejecting Christianity, or maybe it wasn't even that strong at first, more apathy, because he just couldn't see um, how it was making any sort of effect or what point it was in, in culture and society. And so he's sort of resistant to it. That resistance became a little bit more active, but then he realized that he, he needed something in his life, that he needed some sort of spiritual path. Because uh, that was always sort of tugging at him. And there was one person in particular who described an event in his life as if having waken up to, to Jesus, waken up to faith, and that was always haunting him. So he takes the spiritual path that leads him um, to like pantheism, to animism. He's an environmental activist, then to Buddhism, finally to the cult, a witch cult, to be Wiccan. And he becomes, as he calls himself um, at one point, a witch. And it was in this point. Um, where he finds himself in this, this sort of cultic activity in this life, worshiping nature, that Jesus finds him. And he says this, I'd known, I suppose, that the abyss, that there was still something empty inside him, that the abyss was still there inside me, that what I was doing in the woods, though affecting, was at some level still play-acting. 
Then one night, I dreamed of Jesus. The dream was vivid, and when I woke up, I wrote down what I'd heard him say, and I drew what he'd look like. The crux of the matter was that he was to be the next step on my spiritual path. I didn't believe that, or I didn't want it to be true, but the image and the message reminded me of something strange that had happened a few months before. My wife and I were out to dinner celebrating our wedding anniversary when suddenly she said to me, you're going to become a Christian. When I asked her what on earth she's talking about, she said she didn't know. She just had a feeling and that she needed to tell me. It shook me. A Christian? Me? What could be weirder? Then after that dream, it began to make sense. Suddenly, I started meeting Christians everywhere. They were coming out of the woodwork, strangers emailing me out of the blue, priests coming to, to me for help with their writing. I found myself having conversations with friends I'd never known were Christian, who suddenly seemed to want to talk about it. An African man contact, contacted me on Facebook to tell me he'd had a dream in which God had told him to convert me. If you want to know God, he told me, you need to read the book he wrote. And you know it already, it's called Nature. And it kept happening for months. Christ to the left of me, Christ to the right. It was unnerving. I turned away again and again, but every time I looked back, he was still there. I began to feel I was being hunted. I wanted it to stop, at least I thought I did. I had no interest in Christianity. I was a witch, a Zen witch, in fact, which I thought sounded pretty damned edgy. But I knew who was after me, and I knew it wasn't over. One evening, I was sitting in the kitchen of the house in which our coven had had its temple. We were about to go in and conduct an important ritual. As we got up to leave, I felt violently ill. I was dizzy. I was sick. I was lightheaded. Everyone noticed and fussed over me as I sat down and my face pale. I had an overpowering feeling that I should not go into the temple. I felt I was being physically prevented from doing it. Someone had staged an intervention. And after that, there was no escape. Like C.S. Lewis, I could not ignore the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. How much later was it that I was finally pinned down? I don't remember. I was at a concert at my son's music school. We were in a hotel function room full of children ready to play their instruments and proud parents ready to film them doing it. I was just walking to my chair when I was overcome entirely. Suddenly, I can see how everyone in the room was connected to everyone else, and I could see what was going on inside them and inside myself. I was overcome with a huge and inexplicable love, a great wave of empathy for everyone and everything, and it kept coming and coming until I had to stagger out of the room and sit down in the corridor outside. Everything was unchanged and everything was new, and I knew what had happened and who had done it, and I knew that it was too late. I had just become a Christian. Here is a man who so desperately tried to resist the power and the presence of Jesus and could not. And that is the good news. And that is the good news of this book of Acts that we are in. And that is the good news of the story that we are going to look at, or the two stories we're going to look at in Acts chapter 8. Because this morning, I want to tell you about a God whose spirit, that power, is so expansive. And I want to tell you about a God whose embrace is so wide that it includes you. And it includes those you probably do not think it should include. 
And that is the good news of the gospel. So with that, if you would turn to Acts chapter 8, we will get into this wonderful, wonderful moment at the beginning of the church. We're in a series in the book of Acts, and of course, like I said, this is the beginning, the moment, because of what God has done in Jesus and the unleashing of the Spirit that the church begins, this new community takes off, and it's finding its way through and in and around this place where these first Christians seem to be, and it cannot be stopped. It is something that keeps happening and happening. We saw in, in the last couple chapters where because of this expansion of the gospel, it's sort of to, it's highlighting these tensions, these, these conflicts uh, that are at play. As, as Brandon talked about, these, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrews and the conflict that's happening there and how the gospel is sort of uncovering all of that and also speaking to it. And then this kicks off this this crazy persecution that these Christians are wanting to flee at the hand of Saul of Tarsus, who we know will later be converted and we will call and know as Paul. But because of this persecution, the church begins to scatter. And I'm just going to do something very simple this morning, is walk through Acts chapter 8, making some observations and points along the way. So 8, starting in verse chapter 2. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. This is important, because as we remember back in Acts chapter 1, what did Jesus tell these new, these apostles, these people who were following Jesus? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So as we see these people being scattered to Judea and Samaria, that tips us off as, oh, the gospel is expanding into the places that it is supposed to. We see that devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him, and Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds, with one accord, listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. Notice how it's because of persecution that, that the word, that the gospel begins to expand where it's supposed to go. The gospel cannot be stopped. Persecution scatters these apostles into the places where the gospel is supposed to go, and Philip begins to proclaim the Messiah. People are healed, sickness is cured, and I love verse 8, and there was great joy in that city. Because when there is conversion, when the presence of God, the presence of Christ through his spirit is making its way into a place, seems like the only possible response appropriate is joy. Now next in verse 9, we, we are introduced to a man named Simon. Previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. 
saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, Samaritans called God the, the great power. That is how they understood who God was. Simon was able to wield, as a magician, this power. He was a local celebrity. He was somebody who knew what to do to get the crowds going, and people loved him. Simon, the magician, was loved for what he could do and how he could employ these spirits. And people said, this is the power of God. Verse 11, they listened eagerly to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. This wonderful, great power that Simon had all of a sudden became second tier because nothing is on par with the great power of God through his spirit. Here is a man who was known for what he could do, and then all of a sudden the power of the spirit shows up, and it is shown for what it really is. Simon, though great, though popular, could not transform lives. He could not bring joy. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is strange. You should read that and be like, that doesn't make sense because nowhere else in Acts has that happened. Right? Usually people are baptized. The Spirit seems to show up. Here there's this gap. There's this gap of time between when they give themselves to Jesus and they're baptized and when they are then, what is called to an act, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Why? And there's actually a lot of confusion as to why this is happening. Because again, this is unique. This isn't something to make a theology over. This is something to wonder about because this isn't how it has happened since. Here are some ideas of why, or here is, I think, one of the most profound and helpful ideas as to why. It's because the apostles, this was a gift for the apostles. The time between when Samaritans gave themselves to Jesus and when the apostles then came to lay hands on them, I think that was because the apostles needed to see that this was in fact true. Now we know from the gospels, right, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along. Samaritans have had conflicts for lots of reasons, for lots of times. They, they argued about the nature of God. They argued about where to place the temple. They actually had a common history that then where they began to separate. And Jews believed they were the center. It was from them that the rest of the world would be blessed. They had Torah. They had true religion and true access to God. The Samaritans were sort of kind of doing their own weird thing. And so, of course, if the gospel is going to a new place, wouldn't it be for the apostles' gift to see that the gospel has reached this far? That the expansive power of the Spirit has, in fact, gone to even the Samaritans? And make no mistake, the incredible intimacy that's required for an apostle to lay their hands on a Samaritan, that they might then be filled with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, those who were excluded from God's family 
are now included, and it's the gift for the apostles to be able to witness such a thing. I mean, could you imagine if they were hearing from Jerusalem hearsay about the Samaritans coming to know Jesus? How easy that would be to dismiss. How easy it is for me, for us to dismiss when we hear of an enemy or a people group that we dislike actually coming to be faithful followers of Jesus. That's really hard. But what a gift when you can actually see it and participate in it. What an incredible gift of the Spirit. So the apostles, Peter, John, they come, lay hands on them, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're not done with Simon the magician. He actually shows up again. He sees this. He's in awe. This is crazy. This is a crazy type of magic, and I want it. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit, this is verse 18, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Shots fired right there, right? For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. So Peter rebukes him. I mean, why is this so, I mean, offensive? Because Simon at this point doesn't quite get it. He wants this power he's not quite ready to enter into the life that sort of makes sense of this power or what this power makes possible. He wants the utility of the Spirit instead of the life that the Spirit brings, which is absolutely convicting to me and I think should be to North American Christians. How easy it is to want the power that Christianity can offer over and above the transformation that Christ himself is actually after. We want the utility of the thing, so much like Simon, rather than the life-altering story that we're called to enter in and to live into. And Peter's like, you can't buy it. This is not for sale. This is about God, not about you. This is not something that you can use. This is something that because of Jesus and through the Spirit that involves you and wants something to do with you. It's removing again the person from the center, replacing that with Jesus and the Spirit. And I still think there's possibility here for Simon to repent. I mean, Simon at the end, pray for me. Pray for me because I actually want not to have happened what you just said would happen. And then the story takes a turn. We move from Simon the magician to another place, starting in verse 26. Well, before that, we see that the, the, the good news spreads all throughout Samaria to many villages of the Samaritans. And again, the expansive wideness of God's embrace reaches those who were at one point excluded. Verse 26, then the angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. 
So this story in, in Acts 8 begins and ends with the Spirit. Because here the Spirit says, Philip, get up and go. At the end, the Spirit does a weird thing and sort of like transports Philip to Azotus. And who knows what happens there. But I mean, it's like a crazy wild thing. Because I think Luke is wanting again to show this is about what the Spirit is doing. This isn't because Philip was an incredible missionary, had great missionary strategy. The apostles, it wasn't because they, they sat down around a table and thought, you know, what is the best way to reach the lost? No, this, the apostles are all about trying to keep up with the Spirit. Acts is about keeping up with the Spirit, not about creating missional strategies in order to make the gospel have impact. The Spirit of God is unleashed, and the apostles are like, oh, dang, how do I keep up with it? And so here the Spirit says to Philip, get up and go. And so the way to keep up with the Spirit is to be people who hear it and then say, okay. So Philip says, all right, I'll do it. So he got up and went, verse 27. And now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court of the official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem, talking about the eunuch, to worship and was returning home seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. And so Philip ran up to it. Think about that. That is funny. So, Pete, so Philip ran up to it. He's running alongside of a chariot and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. So here, Philip gets up, he goes to where the Spirit tells him. Then we're told there's this Ethiopian eunuch, who is this high official in charge of the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, Candace was a general term given to the queen of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is not the current country of Ethiopia, but pretty much referred to all of Africa south of Egypt. So this is a massive, massive area this queen had power over. This eunuch had also an incredible amount of power. He was entrusted to the queen's money and how to deal with it and what to do with it. But he was also a eunuch a castrated male, which was not uncommon for somebody who would work closely to the queen for reasons that there would be no illicit behavior, but also so a person wouldn't get in their, their, in their head, oh, there should be some sort of political power place, perhaps I should marry somebody, I should have kids, and all of a sudden there's an overthrowing of the government. So here's a castrated male from Ethiopia in this chariot reading the book of Isaiah, out loud, because that was common practice. Now, he was reading from a certain section of Isaiah. I mean, the ways the th things worked, it wasn't like they had the whole book of Isaiah. They would have different scrolls of Isaiah. In this particular scroll, he's reading this section. Philip hears it and says, do you know what you're reading? And, and the Ethiopian knew, how, how can I, unless someone, someone explains it to me? But why this section in Isaiah? 
I mean, of course, we, we see this moment in the, the suffering servant of Jesus, which is incredibly beautiful and wonderful. We know that before it's talking about how Jesus is going to redeem Israel. We know that also in its context, it's talking about this new covenant that Israel is going to be part of and this new time of creation when things will be made new. He's reading from this section in Isaiah because it's a part of the Bible that actually includes him, includes eunuchs. A little bit of history. This is where you wish, like in a sermon, there was like that little um, E, you know, when you say music, it's going to be explicit. Like, this is what, just a heads up, sorry in advance. So Deuteronomy 23.1, it's going to be up on the screen, but I'm going to read it out loud because we're just going to go for it. So Deuteronomy 23.1 says this, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Now that seems straightforward. I don't think I need to develop that anymore. It just seemed, it, it seems, it seems like a bummer in multiple ways. But one, of, uh, but one, one reason why is because anybody who was castrated, as we see, in Old Testament times, could not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. But here we have an Ethiopian eunuch who is intrigued by the story of Israel that he comes to the temple to worship and he will not be admitted. He is so caught up with and fascinated by this God who is revealed in these scriptures, even though he knows it doesn't include him. Of course, until now. Again, Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And this is what he's reading. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And as Philip begins to explain this, and the good news about Jesus, he cannot do it without going all the way to Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, which says this. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the thing that pleases me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah because the good news is he will be included. And he knows somehow that this passage in Isaiah 53, which is, he's reading, this is where everything changes. This is where everything changes. Tell me about this. Tell me about this one who is oppressed, 
like me, who is afflicted like me, who is cut off, pun completely intended? Tell me about this one. And so Philip does. And he tells them the incredible story, the expansive power of God's spirit that comes already to the ends of the earth. We're talking about an Ethiopian eunuch. Yes, it made its way to Judea and Samaria, but now it finds its way to somebody from Africa. I mean, think about that. Before the spirit makes its way to Rome, it made its way to Africa. And that's significant because I think it's saying that the center of Christianity is not a place. It is not a region. It is not even a people group. It is Jesus Christ himself. The spirit of God cannot be stopped. The embrace of God is wide and it includes this Ethiopian eunuch. And so Philip begins to describe who this Jesus is, what God has done in this Jesus, the type of futures that it opens up for somebody who had no place. All of a sudden, they have a place. And I hope you see in this story that there is just no mistake that God wanted so desperately to meet this eunuch. He tells the spirit to, he, to, for, he tells Philip to go. Philip is quite literally running after the eunuch. We are to see that God runs after those he desires. We see that this man is reading in this particular book at this particular time with a person next to him to describe what it actually means and what it means for this person. And so because of this, the eunuch cannot imagine what could prevent him from being baptized. Let's continue, verse 35. Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Before this, the answer would, have, of course, been everything. I mean, look at you. You know why you're prevented from this. You know why you're excluded. But now, the answer is completely and utterly nothing. Nothing prevents you from being baptized. Nothing prevents you from being submerged in the story and the life and the death, resurrection of Jesus, and then pulled out of those waters and then embraced into the wider family of God. Nothing prevents you anymore. Absolutely nothing. The way one commentator puts this, Willie Jennings, he says, faith found water. Faith will always find water. What we see in this story is that the eunuch's desire for God 
matched God's desire for the eunuch. So then when they came up out of the water, verse 39, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And there's speculation that because of this eunuch, because the gospel made its way to the Ethiopian eunuch and to Africa, then all of a sudden the gospel began to break out in that place. That the eunuch becomes one of the first missionaries, if not the first missionary, to the larger region of Ethiopia. That is just absolutely amazing to me. So again, I want to tell you about a God whose power through the Spirit is expansive. And I want to tell you about a God whose embrace is so wide that it includes you and it includes others who may not know or who you may not think should be included. So here's some considerations, I think, in response to this text. The first is this. How are you keeping up with the Spirit? How's that going? How are you keeping up with the Spirit? Do we have a sense, like I hear a lot in churches, man, the church is dying. The church is really going the way of, what's, I don't even know the phrase. It's bad, bad. It's just going downhill. But that's not the story of Christianity. The story of Christianity is about a spirit who keeps expanding. I mean, if you want to know what's actually happening in the church, look south, not us. Look south in places like Asia, South America, Africa. The church is expanding, and it is wonderful, and it is good because God is always on the move and because God's embrace is wide. So that's the first consideration. How are you keeping up with the Spirit? Is that something we even think about? Is that something I spend my life doing is discerning what the Spirit is up to and how I can get up and go and where I need to be running and who I need to be listening to and who might invite me into their chariot in completely, utterly, and surprising ways. Second consideration, thinking about Simon the magician, is your faith just a utility? Is your faith just something that you like to have because it gives you something? Or is your faith actually the life-transforming power of God through his spirit? Last consideration. Do you know that God desires you? I mean, that word desire almost seems a little bit like, whoa, strong, but it's true. God desired the eunuch so much so that he went after him. God desires us. If we've found ourselves part of the community, the family of God, we have somehow responded to God's desire for us. So do you know that God desires you? Do you know that God desires others? I mean, do you think like the eunuch that you don't belong? What are you? A man? A woman? What do you have to offer? Can't procreate? Malformed? Have some sort of disability? 
God's embrace wide enough. And it includes in some pretty surprising ways. So how are you keeping up with the Spirit? Is faith a utility for you? Do you know that God desires you and God desires others? And what does it look like for us to be propelled by that desire for the rest of the world, the people around us, our city, our families? This is incredible news, my friends. But the Ethiopian eunuch discovered himself in the story and could not let go. And that by God's grace, there was somebody there to explain how that connected to the incredible message of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We have an opportunity to partake in communion this morning, which again is the actual image and practice of saying that God's spirit and his power is expansive and his embrace is wide. This is an opportunity for us to say yes to the God who includes and who invites. And so I encourage you as you come forward to, be, to remember that, not just about what is true for you, but it's what is true for others partaking and participating. That somehow, by God's grace, we're caught up in this thing we call the way, we call Christianity, we call following Jesus.